Welcome to the Coastal Connections podcast, where we're collecting stories from inspiring individuals across Atlantic Canada who are involved in innovative solutions that highlight local perspectives and that are building resilience throughout their communities. This podcast is produced by Coastal Roots Radio at the Grenfell campus of Memorial University of Newfoundland and in partnership with the University of Guelph. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Sandra Eager, and in this, our first episode of 2022, we talk about all things seaweed with a unique and passionate individual from PEI who helps us see what a resilient human nature relationship looks like in her community. It all kind of knits together. Each thing impinges on the other and Mm -hmm. helps to build connection and community. You just heard the voice of Dr. Irene Novacek, our guest today that will help illustrate a wonderful example of a healthy and sustainable human nature relationship. And that the key, spoiler alert, is to develop strong networks throughout your community. So what does all of this have to do with seaweed? Well, Dr. Novacek is a previous director of the Institute of Island Studies at the University of Prince Edward Island. She's a seaweed product entrepreneur, a seed bank operator, and a vocal watershed activist. We wanted to learn more about how Irene works within her community in a way that helps build resilience. Last fall, Dr. Kelly Vauden, the head of the Rural Resilience Group and my supervisor, interviewed our guest today while she was in PEI, and I'm pleased to welcome her as our co-host for this episode. I'm a professor with the Environmental Policy Institute at Grenfell Campus, Memorial University. The Rural Resilience Research Group is a group of students, postdocs, faculty, colleagues, and community partners who examine the resilience of rural communities and regions and strategies for enhancing that resilience, whether it be sustainable local economies, community involvement in conservation and stewardship, climate change adaptation, to name just a few of the projects we're working on. After speaking with Kelly, it's clear that her interview with Irene offers insights into the process of refining and defining what healthy human ecosystem relationships and expectations could look like in the future of Atlantic Canada. I first met Irene in 2011 at a conference in St. John's, the annual conference of the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation. We put together an edited volume called Place Peripheral from that conference, and Irene had a chapter on her work in Chile, where she was also working on traditional food and medical uses of sea plants. I met her a few times since, but then traveled to Prince Edward Island last fall to actually visit her at her farm and learn more about the range of activities that Irene is involved in and the way they connect and help support her community. Without any further delay, let's welcome Irene as we jump into her diverse experiences with seaweed. You'll notice through this episode that the recording picked up the wonderful background noises of farm life, from chair creeks to crickets and roosters. I've been a bit messianic about seaweeds, like forever. I have a PhD in seaweeds, and I think they're very important medicinal plants and underappreciated. And I'm very concerned about ocean health, and I'm very concerned about the impacts of industrial aquaculture on the seafloor, everything from salmon to mussels. And I see that the integration of marine plants into, into these systems is the logical way to go to allow for for those aquaculture enterprises to be more sustainable and less dangerous for marine health. She first discusses the need to integrate marine plants into industrial aquaculture. Terry Chopin is one of Irene's colleagues at the University of New Brunswick. She tells us a bit about his experiments with integrated trophic marine aquaculture in the Bay of Fundy. 
He's growing kelp in between muscle lines adjacent to salmon pens so that the nutrient pollution that the fish and the shellfish generate is absorbed by the plants turned into food and uh, which can be served on a plate very complementary with shellfish and salmon. Lots of scope for the imagination there. What I'm hearing is that seaweed is the yarn that knits together healthy fabrics. NOAA, or the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, defines aquaculture as the breeding, rearing, and harvesting of fish, shellfish, algae, and other organisms in all types of water environments. For more information about aquaculture, and if you're interested in exploring how COVID impacted the aquaculture industry, please check out episode 18 and 19 of Coastal Roots' first podcast volume, Social Fish Dancing. Here's Irene on ocean health and climate change impacts around PEI. It is a big concern because um, the, the, the key large edible and medicinal plants here are cold temperate to uh, Arctic species. And the Gulf of St. Lawrence, where we are, is, is warming appreciably. Like, I'm the research scientist for the marine protected area up in Basin Head, up on the East Shore. And uh, we have 20 years worth of water temperature and nutrient data for that estuary. And the trend is, is terrifying. The interior portions of that estuary already go above 28 degrees, which is the upper thermal limit for most cold temperate to Arctic species. In addition to warming water temperatures, the invasion of the green crab has also contributed to the depletion of seaweeds. This isn't because they eat the moss or any other seaweed. It's because the green crabs are eating many of the juvenile mussels throughout the Maritimes. And this very special moss species depends on the mussels for attachment at the bottom. This is extraordinarily uncommon, as most other species attach themselves to rock. Invasive species like the green crab are one of those unexpected changes that both human and natural systems have to adapt and respond to. Yet another threat to coastal and marine waterways are from agriculture. Agriculture is a key source of nutrient input to PEI coastal watersheds. When water is enriched by nutrients such as the nitrogen and phosphorus that runs off from the chemical fertilizers and animal manure used on crops, the results can be harmful algae blooms and reduced oxygen concentrations. This process is called eutrophication. This quick rundown from Irene really helps paint a picture of how all these pieces are connected. Eutrophication was the other one because it's surrounded by potato fields and they're all growing for Cavendish farms. So it's Russet Burbank potatoes that can only absorb 40% of the nitrogen you put on the soil. So the rest goes into the estuary and causes massive alva blooms and they smother the moss and the mussels and everything else and make the water go anoxic in the middle of summer up in the top of the estuary where it's really stinky hot. So lots of threats. Like it's a microcosm of everything that could go wrong. Seaweed is essential for absorbing nitrogen, which prevents the growth of harmful algaes, ultimately contributing to a holistic and healthy ecosystem for all ocean life. As much as we sometimes try to forget or ignore, the fact is that humans are impacted by nature and nature is impacted in turn by us, for better or for worse. This is the core understanding of human nature systems, It's a complex, interconnected, confusing, sometimes frustrating, but critical fact that impacts all of us. 
As an individual, Irene chose to respond to these multiple threats. She shares her experiences working with others to restore a local species that is close to her heart. One of the, you know, valued ecosystem components in the marine protected area is this really, this unique, bizarre, giant form of Irish moss, which they're all female clones. They never reproduce sexually. Uh, They only fragment. They can't attach themselves to the bottom because they never form a hold fast because they never have spores or gametes. Or, and so they depend on clumps of mussels to catch them, throw bissel threads at them and catch them and tie them down to the bottom, which the mussels happily do. The mussels can't get enough of the moss. They, they love it. It's shady. It, produced, it, it provides them with juicy, gooey food, all wrapped up, little balls wrapped up with bacteria that presumably consume. Um, it, it, it keeps them up out of the mud. This is a muddy estuary. This mm. is like a place where no Irish moss should ever grow. I have, I have, I've actually swum and counted every rock on the bottom, and I think there were like five. <laughs> it's it's a muddy and sandy mm. bottomed estuary. So how the moss ever got established in there, I don't know. It was sometime in the last thousand years, because before a thousand years ago, it was it was a freshwater lake, and before that, you know, it was covered in ice. So sometime in the post-glacial period, this Irish moss got established and evolved into this really huge plant um, that has this bizarre, like, unique kind of life history, which is thoroughly dependent on the well-being of those mussels. Irene and her team actually work closely with the mussel industry and receive donations of juvenile mussels that contribute to their restoration. They construct clumps of moss and mussels that naturally attach themselves together, and then they are planted. I mean, there used to be a whole kilometer long, 40 meters wide, 40 centimeters tall, thick, like just solid eelgrass and Irish moss. And when I went in there in 2014, there were 225 clumps left spread over three kilometers. That was all that was left. We couldn't even call them clumps. There were one mussel, two mussels. And all the, all the mussels were really big and covered in barnacles and clearly on their last legs. So it was practically extirpated when we started. So bringing in young mussels, fishing out the green crabs, propagating the Irish moss, putting them together, planting them out. We're pretty close to 200 square meters of moss now, so that's good. Concern for the Irish moss motivated a response and led us to consider the way rural communities also face a range of threats and require the integration of social ecological conscious networks to build more resilient societies. So our research has shown time and time again the importance of connections and relationships and networks, both within communities and outside of communities. So Irene's example is very powerful in that regard as well. It shows how Irene has been building connections within PEI and her community, but also reaching out globally and being engaged in international work, which has resulted in ideas that have come back to PEI and helped to create her business venture and some of the work that she's been doing. We have spent a lot of time looking at, at social networks and social connections and their importance and how they can be fostered to, to create healthy relationships within communities and, and beyond. Between the dark, muddy bottom where new life forms, the interactions between human and nature across Atlantic Canada, and the uncertainty brought on by new species, climate change, and now a pandemic, 
are facilitating these beautiful stories of life and resilience during challenging times. If we foster more sustainable behaviors and relationships, we can thrive alongside nature and enhance our responses to future disruptions. We've heard now a bit about the relationship of PEI citizens and organizations and their coastal environments through moss restoration. Now let's hear more about related human nature networks that use local seaweed products in a micro enterprise called Oceana Sea Plants, led by Irene. She has purposefully designed her seaweed business to reach out into the community, provide equitable, healthy products that can be likened to the way mussels reach out into their environment to build healthy clumps of life. I hesitate to call it a small business. It is very small. It's a rural family micro enterprise. It's actually consciously not designed to make money. It's more of a public service. And I'm not interested in growing it because if I get beyond 25,000 gross, then I have to start collecting and remitting taxes. And, And my mission is to make these seaweed herbal products readily available to people of limited income via farmer's markets. Irene's description of explicitly designing a business for social good contrasts with the common expectation that businesses are only successful when the goal is to increase profit. Some of our previous guests, such as Ben Wiper of 3F in episode two, have also run businesses motivated by the desire to make positive social environmental change, in his case, through waste recovery. A social enterprise is defined in many different ways. Uh, The government of Canada defines it as a revenue-generating organization whose objective is to have a social impact, and I would add social or environmental impact. Often people are generating revenue uh, from businesses such as hotel or accommodation facilities to go back into the social aim of economic development, uh, heritage and cultural restoration and maintenance uh, in communities, and just really sustaining the communities. Some of the well-known ones are those such as the Shorefast Foundation on Fogo Island, work in Bonavista around heritage development, co-ops that have developed in the Labrador Straits, for example, to provide financial services or housing for seniors where the free market will not. Irene further describes how even her procurement practices aim to strengthen the local economy. So we don't have any shop front. We don't have any big, I mean, all the infrastructure is basically part of our domestic infrastructure. All the herbs, I grow my own herbs. I pick seaweeds off the shore. I do buy um, edible seaweeds from uh, multi-generational harvesters based in the Bay of Fundy and resell them, make them available in Prince Edward Island. So I and my daughter and my husband, we're the three workers We don't have a bookkeeper. I do the books. (laughs) It's all quite self-contained. Everything I sell. They are all invented by us and made from scratch by us, except for the seaweeds that I bring from Grandma Nan. Everything else is grown, collected, manufactured, packaged and labeled here. I don't pay myself or any other family member, actually. But what we get is the tax break for business use of home. So I get a tax break. And basically what I make on any Saturday at the farmer's market, I spend in the farmer's market and bring the groceries home. So it also helps me to support other small businesses and and farmers in the community, which makes me very happy. So it's really about satisfaction. And it's the reward of, of being useful in a very practical way. 
Social enterprise relies on social capital. The objectives of the organization are driven by a desire to benefit the community and the residents of that community. So really the aims of social enterprise are are linked to relationships and networks and connections within a community. You can see that in Irene's story, certainly that that pride of place and building on place-based strengths for community resilience, uh, including local plants. I'm extremely curious how Irene came to be in this seaweed business. She shares that when she was the director of island studies, she was awarded a grant that enabled her to travel to the South Pacific Islands. Here, she worked with local women about using sea plants as food. This led to a number of opportunities throughout the region. When I was there, I started doing workshops with women who were not aware of the edible and medicinal marine plants. They were the fishers working on on the reefs in shallow water uh, with children in tow. Incredibly difficult work, scavenging, picking up snails and sea cucumbers and whatever. The seaweeds were right there at their hands, and yet they had children suffering from vitamin deficiencies and other ailments that could be alleviated if they incorporated these free marine vegetables into their diets. They're often living on small atolls where they couldn't grow a lot of green couldn't grow much of anything, really, just sand. Uh, often didn't have access to a lot of fresh water. The, the groundwater would be brackish. So. And it was really difficult for them. They would have to persuade someone with a motorboat to take them to a larger island or the mainland to access a farmer's market and bring green vegetables home for their children to eat. And that was a, a whole day away from their other work and family <laughs> responsibilities. And so it doesn't happen often. As soon as I noticed what was going on, and I made it my mission to just hold seaweed workshops in every possible village that everywhere where I went and show the women which red, green, and brown seaweeds were edible and then how to use them and which ones had medicinal properties that they could take advantage of. These seaweed workshops were a positive step towards building capacity of local women. But these women quickly identified that they needed a marketable product to liberate their local economy. Halfway through the workshop, they said, well, you know, this is great, Dr. Irene. We really appreciate having these extra tools in our toolkit, in our medicine kit. But you know what we really, really need is something that's marketable, something we can take to the city and sell to middle class women who have money. Because in our healing work, we get paid, we might get a couple of eggs or a yam, bundle of vegetables, but nobody has cash. And we need cash because we have to buy rice and sugar and kerosene and bandages. And, you know, mm-hmm. we need to buy things, but we, we have no cash. Social enterprises are popping up across Atlantic Canada. This model of entrepreneurship draws on social capital, builds new connections, and offers an alternative to the profit-at-all-cost model that has dominated entrepreneurial and industrial thinking in the past. Irene described how she met a multi-generational group of women who had a small business in which they were developing luxurious beauty creams with success, and she spoke to them about replicating their model. Just down the road in Suva, I had already met a multi-generational group of women, grandmother, mother, and, and daughter, who had developed this really interesting small business, where they went out to the villages and bought unrefined coconut oil and brought it back to the city 
And they had developed this really luxurious, like sell it to the stars, to send it to Hollywood, put it in the gift packs for the Oscars kind of product line of beauty creams and moisturizers. So I went and talked to them. I said, look, here's, here's a seaweed. It's used in food processing. Like we have Irish moss. They have other equivalents that have carrageenan in them or, and agar and different things. I know how to make them into food. And the women could make food products and sell them in the market. But I think the real money is probably in what you're doing in cosmetics. Yeah. <laughs> so can you come and give us some advice on how to work with coconut oil or their coconut oil equivalent and our seaweed, which mm-hmm. is an emulsifying agent, and make something that they could make with nothing more than a pot on a, on a fire and a wooden spoon. That's what they got to work with. And recycled bottles and jars that they all keep and reuse and reuse and reuse like yeah. in the villages. It does say, yeah. once you have a glass Everything. jar, man, that's precious with, mm. with, with the lid that works all perfect. Irene's stories from these women in Indonesia remind me of Atlantic Canada, where coastal residents also often draw on local knowledge and resourcefulness to survive. So they came in and they had to look because all these healers knew their medicinal herbs. So I said, well, what, what do you use when you have a person with a sore or a scab? Or what do you use their losing their hair or have dandruff, you know, what herbs do you use? So we pulled their knowledge onto the table and said, well, we could infuse all of those into, into your coconut oil. And then how do we get the seaweed into it? And these brilliant women just walked in and said, that's an emulsifier, that gel? Well, just make mayonnaise, slather it all over yourself. End of story. So we worked on it and figured it out, how we had to filter the kuma mm-hmm. we were using down there. There are soluble and insoluble polysaccharides. Okay. And the soluble ones go right into your skin and disappear. But the insoluble ones stay on the surface of your skin. You make this nasty, flaky dandruff. So then we figured out, oh, well, let's just push it through a cloth, take the insolubles out. And then, you know, we, we figured it out how to do it and then what proportion you could put in with the coconut oil to make a nice cream. I mean, those women were with me for, I think, a month. It's now becoming clear how Irene, in her international development work, got a great idea to transfer to rural PEI. She got home and got right to work. So I came home and I, I figured out how to do what we had done down there with my, our local seaweeds here. Mm-hmm. And I looked up, I did the research and figured out, like, what are the manufacturing standards? How do you make label? What, what options are there for packaging? And I went into the farmer's market and said, I need a booth. I want to test market some stuff. And I thought, like, this is dead in the water. PEI is so conservative. Nobody is going to buy, like, seaweed jelly to put on their face. But what the hell, you know, have a try. So we have heard similar stories from Newfoundland as well, where farmers markets have helped provide a testing ground for new, often food-related products, and also provide a meeting place for developing social capital and relationships and sharing knowledge and ideas, all of which contribute to community vibrancy and resiliency. Like most small businesses, she had to take risks to introduce her product in the beginning. And Oceana Sea Plants grew from there. The farmer's market was a perfect place to find inspiration and get ideas for product development. I just was quite aggressive about it. I I stood in the middle of the corridor in the farmer's market and I said, here, try this. (laughs) And I squirted it on everybody and they started to buy it, something else. And then they would say, Oh, I really like this. You know what I really need? I need, I need some of that. Can you make this into a facial? Can you put this into a foot cream? 
oh, that's a good idea. So we would just go home and invent something else and see if it sold. So then I went back down to the South Pacific and I pulled them all together again. And, and I brought in some consultants who, who did small business development and who knew something about the standards down there. And we did basic hygiene, hygienic processing, how to advertise your products, how to make them an information flyer, blah, 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 all this stuff with them. Nice. And they trotted off happily. As both Kelly and Irene have shown, small businesses often depend on the farmer's market and vice versa. Farmer's markets are also a social enterprise model, and it's a nice example of network development. Microenterprises rely on community support. These networks of neighbors kept people going in challenging situations such as the pandemic. When I was speaking to Irene about Oceana sea plants, she shared that she maintains her own herb garden and uses these herbs in her products. I'm sure she would have never imagined that this garden would lead to a seed bank initiative and help her community get through some tough times. I was dedicated. I wanted to grow my own herbs. And then I had to figure out what herbs we had here that were equivalent to the ones we had in the South Pacific. And then I had to grow them. So it was a long, slow journey. The garden is completely out of control, though. I mean, the garden has really gotten to be way too big. Growing all these herbs and things is crazy. And, and the work involved, the amount of time involved in hand-picking and cleaning and drying and sorting and packaging and then repackaging and selling herbs is immense. The, the size and diversity of plants in my garden is directly related to what I do with Oceana sea plants because I use those herbs in my products. I do, I do solar infusions and water infusions and alcohol tinctures and all kinds of stuff with these herbs, and I incorporate them into my products. And every year I collect seeds, and I collect seeds from my vegetable garden. I just find the price of seeds, it's like the price of cosmetics and health products. They're inaccessible to the very people who really need to grow their own garden. You can go into a seed store and try to get enough enough seeds for a vegetable garden and it'll cost you 50 bucks. Well, who, trying to scrape by on old age security, has 50 bucks to spare to venture on seeds that may or may not produce $20 worth of vegetables? I love this clip from Irene. She explains the connection between her seed bank initiative, the preservation of plants, herbs she grows, and the products she sells. The way our seed bank works is gardeners donate their excess, the seeds that they gather. A lot of the seed bank seeds are from my garden, <laughs> but we do get donations from other gardeners. Plus I go around to Bessie's and I say, okay, can you give me you know, the seeds that you're gonna throw out? Cause they're too old and I'll test them. And if they're viable, we'll put them in the seed bank for a year. And we always write down like how old they are. And then every spring I muster up a couple of volunteers and we go through all the seeds in the seed banks, all the packets. It all kind of knits together. There, it, it all impinges, each thing impinges on the other and mm-hmm. helps to build connection and community. Our experiences with trying to enhance resilience in communities have shown the importance of, I mentioned social capital, that that really resilience is about drawing from the basket of assets and resources that we have as individuals and communities to respond and adapt to changes in our environment. So mobilizing and maintaining, building those connections and networks are critical. Look to examples such as Hurricane Igor in Newfoundland and Labrador 
the, the writing about that experience talks about how important people's care for one another, the ability and willingness to help each other. People volunteered their time, their equipment, and various resources to, to help respond to that emergency situation. And we've seen it in the pandemic as well. And Irene talks about that also. So uh, time and time again, we see the importance of, of social capital and relationships and, and caring in responding to emergencies, but also to more ongoing changes that we're seeing, uh, such as climate change. The seed bank provided relief for the community during the pandemic and fostered new community relationships. She reflects on how the pandemic actually changed her enterprise. Last year, when the pandemic hit, we had all these young people. They had no job, feeling food insecure, and they, they wanted to grow gardens, and they'd never done it before, didn't know where to start buying seeds and didn't have the money to buy seeds anyway. So I did a very brisk business for young mothers, especially like young women with babies on hips, parade of them coming to my garden. First of all, they dug all kinds of stuff out of my garden, just hauled it away and planted it. (laughs) It was great. Because I wasn't making, busy making a whole lot of anything, sales were very minimal. I really threw energy into the seed bank and, and Teresa Doyle, who does the Rock Barra Artists Retreat, they do health and wellness, music, and I do a seaweed workshop there once a year. She runs a co-op and she came to me and she said, look, I have all these young people who, who want to grow gardens. Can we, can we get seeds from your seed bank? So I would put together like a garden in a bag with everything that a novice gardener needs to grow. I have a basic garden. And then, and then I, I really had to buy some seeds as well to, to make up for the gaps. So I just put the word out. I said, I'm, I'm doing these, these kits for young people. If you want to make any, any extra donations to the seed bank so that I can buy seeds. Well, the first one to the door was John Reeder, a musician. Two pennies rubbed together on a good day, $100. So we had enough money to buy fresh seeds and, and really populate the seed bank nicely with, with fresh seeds from other uh, seed providers like Hope Seeds in Nova Scotia. And we have our PEI Seed Alliance. I, I got a bunch of seeds from them. There are a bunch of local organic growers who, who've gone into seed production and sales as well. So mm-hmm. I was able to buy a bunch from them. It was great. Mainly through word of mouth, Irene is encouraging and empowering people to be more self-sufficient as they navigate their mental and physical health needs. I'm all about encouraging people to to be more self-sufficient. And also, because we have mental health crises and physical health crises here on Prince Edward Island, we need to encourage people to get out and get active. They don't have to jog. But at least if they they even had a little patch of garden where they got their hands into the dirt, hands in dirt is surprisingly good for mental health. And it's, and it's not just mental, it's actually there are physiological things going on when you are exposed to the microflora mm. in soil that are good for you and that you can absorb. And just to be out and doing something productive. But if it's, if it's economically not available to you and you're feeling stressed out all the time anyway and you might not have the motivation, so I thought, well, you know, would it be motivating if we provided just seeds for free just or for 25 cents? It's really informal. People come and visit. I always give them the garden tour and generally haul away something. If not seeds, then roots or shoots or bulbs. Or <laughs> so Irene's story reminds me of the critical importance of sense of place and building on place-based strengths. 
We can also learn from Irene about utilization of our coastal resources and looking at resources such as seaweed that can be used to help with health and economic development and food security. So far today, we've heard a lot about Irene's role in the community. But let's conclude by hearing a bit more about her work as a scientist and activist. She's worked alongside watershed organizations with the intention of informing policy. Here on Prince Edward Island, I think it's very important to, to acknowledge the work of the watershed associations. And, mm-hmm. and up in Basin Head, at the Marine Protected Area, our community partner on the ground is the local watershed association. So the Surian Area Branch of the PEI Wildlife Federation are our partners. Now that we've you know, done the years of experimentation and testing and so on, they are actually carrying out the restoration. I'm just so impressed with them. They hire so many young people and give them experience doing stream restoration. And because they're at Basin Head, unlike the other watershed groups, they have marine projects and they're doing saltgrass and sand dune restorations and eelgrass, eelgrass plantations. I get the pleasure of working with high school and university students every summer there. Kelly has also worked in this area. Let's go to her to understand how watershed organizations are connecting to this conversation of community resilience. Watershed organizations are extremely valuable to have within your regional network. They highlight the interconnections of all things natural and social. They help us understand connections between land and fresh water, for example, and in turn estuary and coastal environment systems and a whole range of human uses. Watershed thinking is in contrast to traditional divisions and boundaries that are in place in our society that sometimes prevent us from seeing the bigger picture. Let's start to wrap up by hearing some final thoughts from Kelly. I think some of the things I took away from the interview with Irene is the importance of committed, skilled, knowledgeable, innovative social entrepreneurs and individuals who care for each other and for those ecosystems. Rural communities in Atlantic Canada in particular often don't have the economies of scale to provide the returns that profit-driven businesses are looking for. But people care deeply about their communities and they can organize and support a social enterprise that might be motivated by other things, like keeping one's community vibrant and sustainable, providing food or heritage preservation. It can be a way to support local incomes, and in the case of retreat of government agencies or private enterprises, to ensure that communities continue to have access to important goods and services. Kelly shares some questions that will help us explore gaps and opportunities in this area moving forward. We have a rich history of social entrepreneurship in Atlantic Canada, and I would like to see more recorded and shared about those experiences and how we might learn from them for the future. We lost a lot of co-ops, for example in our province. Why? And where have social enterprises done well? How have they evolved? What are some models we could learn from elsewhere in similar settings? And what will the future of social enterprise look like in a time of social political change, including concentration of wealth and aging communities? These are just some of the questions that I have and that Irene's story raises. Irene's interest and participation in social entrepreneurship meld with community sustainability and helped us present the type of human-environmental interactions that are needed to respond to multi-scalar complex problems that we're currently experiencing in coastal communities. So how can you and I support people and organizations who are striving to embrace these desired human-nature relationships? I think one of the unspoken motivations here is Irene's belief that as the more people appreciate the qualities of seaweed through these amazing products, the more people will care about the seaweeds and what is happening to local ecosystems they depend upon. Irene also gives us some ideas about what people can do to build connections within their communities and regions. Start a microenterprise. Help someone garden. 
or learn about medicinal plants. Get involved to support a watershed group or a restoration effort. I was excited to hear about the story as we start on a new marine biomass innovation project for the next six years, looking at underutilized or underappreciated perhaps resources on our coastline, as well as the use of what are considered to be waste products. And certainly seaweeds are, are one of those things that we don't really talk a lot about. And also the connections to food security and health, climate change impacts and adaptation. We can learn from Irene's experiences in that work, I believe. The concepts showcased in this episode apply to many of the stories we've heard throughout the podcast series. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more stories that not only help us understand some threats facing coastal communities, but to really focus on tools and solutions that communities can use to respond to these complex threats. To connect with the people you've heard on this podcast, visit us on the Coastal Roots website at www.coastalroots.ca. If you'd like to share your stories with us or drop us a line, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us on Twitter through Coastal Roots and Rural Resilience. We'd love to hear from you.